Hello, everybody. Welcome to Sanity at the Movies and a happy Valentine's Day to you all. We are recording this episode on Valentine's Day, so I dare say Mrs. Menzel, Mrs. Solzer, and Mrs. Alberson are three very happy ladies today. They know their husbands are recording a great episode of a podcast in which we talk about romantic movies, not in time for you to do anything about it for your own <laughs> Valentine's Day. But well, if you're celebrating Valentine's Day this weekend because Valentine's Day falls on a Wednesday and that's inconvenient, yeah, then maybe. And I dare say people do that sort of thing sometimes. Yeah, not everybody is beholden to the day chronology. Get more fast and loose about it as we go. Yep. How many of you celebrate all your Christmases on the 25th? Then you celebrate all your Christmases on the 25th? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's one. Well, me. what do you mean all your Christmases? You don't oh. bow the knee to, or you know, you do bow the knee to the Lord no. Kronos. Well, all right. I mean, I guess that's true. Yeah, fine. Yes. Kronos is cut up in a million pieces and buried and scattered. And Yeah, that's why in the Alberson household, we don't bow the knee to <laughs> Kronos. We do bow the knee to stomach bug, which is why we had our Christmas on like the 28th this year or something silly like that. But we're not talking about Christmas. Christmas is long behind us. We are in the slog of January, February type junk that everyone loves so much. And I'm Nathan. That's Ben. Hello, Ben. Hello, Nathan. You're very looking very romantic today. I'm feeling very romantic today. <laughs> and there's Jake. Hey. People's sexiest man alive. <laughs> to find people. Like People Magazine. Oh, you yeah, yeah, that's me, yeah. No, actually, it's, I just met humanity. Like, <laughs> that, I don't know who People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive is, but you're just like... I thought Taylor Swift was the sexiest man alive in People Magazine. Was I wrong about that? Was Taylor Swift... Is, is she, do they realize she's a lady? I think they, they might have not. been revealing something about her, him, it. <sighs> Here's my take on Taylor Swift. She looks increasingly like someone who has been sterilized and trapped in amber like and i know she's like getting old but she's 34 right she's yeah well old quote unquote old for a no pop i mean sensation yeah 34 is old for a pop sensation there is something so i don't remember why i guess i'm thinking about this because the whole world's been talking about taylor swift and travis kelsey and whatever you just see her image everywhere and oftentimes you'll come across images of her in her era's tour and she'll be wearing relatively little clothing. Like if she walked into church, we wouldn't be very happy about the way she was dressed. Right. Maybe we'd have to get out the blanket of shame that we keep at Church of the King. Yeah, and one of the denim skirts. One of the denim skirts and say, floor length. Yeah. put this on, Miss Babylon. And the big sweatshirt. The big sweatshirt, Yeah. Disclaimer to any floozies that are listening. <laughs> Come. We don't have anything like that. We'll just all pretend not to notice. Anyway, I see those images and I'm like, there is something, for someone who flaunts her body like she does, there is something so sexless about yeah, this woman. It's, it's part really of, it's fascinating. Part of, it really is fascinating. It's part of a trend that I feel you see with, I think Lady Gaga really feels like the pioneer of an oversexed to the point of sterile sexlessness. Right. But Lady Gaga was so aggressive about that kind of thing. Like she right. started out asexual. She was never a particularly sexy person. Taylor Swift has much more feminine energy than Lady Gaga ever had. Yeah, but she also has little boy energy. Yeah. That is competing or something weird. She has cat lady energy. 
or something. Yeah. Well, she played a cat lady in Cats. Remember that? I, I do remember that. Matter of well, fact, I never she saw it. She played. Yes, you did. <laughs> no, I, you saw it for the booking. No, I didn't. Yeah, I remember this. Yeah, we did our two thousand. I really our two hundred. It was so traumatic that I blocked it. Yeah, <laughs> I have no memory of seeing that movie at all. She actually plays the sex pot cat lady in that. She's like supposed to be like the slinky seductress cat. Yuck. Yeah, it's not great. Yeah, I don't love it. But yeah, you're right. She's just she's sort of sterilized. She's sort of cat lady. She's sort of boy energy. But the thing that makes it even more interesting is that she doesn't bring total androgyny to the table the way a lot of K-pop stars do. Or That's where I was going to go next. I was going to go to K-pop and in Japan and the way that, yeah, there's some very erotic things in in those worlds, but there's also just a sort of sexless sterility. Mm -hmm. I think I was reading something the other day about how Korea, South Korea now has overtaken maybe Japan as one of the most, as the most sterile sexless country oh, and but japan has been very much that way for a long time but it's just sexless and sterile right that's weird you wonder how that you wonder how that relates to the explosion in what it would have been the 80s and 90s in south korea of christianity right i just i'm just curious you'd think that would have changed the outcome <laughs> relative to japan at least Japan doesn't have that explosion in its Well, part of the problem with both Japan and with the Christianization of both Japan and South Korea, I think, is that it works in tandem with the Westernization of Japan and Korea, and it's really indistinguishable. So if you talk to our friend Jason about ministry, who's Chinese and does Chinese ministry, one of his biggest struggles with international students from China for 10 years is... When they come, they want to experience Western culture. So he can get them to come to church, but he can't get them to come to a service in Chinese, even though it's their native language. He can't get them to sing Chinese songs. He can't get them to pray in Chinese, their mother tongue. It's like they just want to have a Western experience, and sampling Christianity is part of that. And so discipling them is teaching them and requiring them to Mm. own their Christianity in their mother tongue and translate it to their native culture. And that's just a big part of the job and the work. And I think if you think through that lens or that perspective, that a sort of superficial Christianity is just part of the Westernization, then it makes sense that they just sort of like skip right through any real Christianity mm-hmm. to the logical conclusions of where Western civilization actually is yeah. gone. Yeah, but from what I know, South Korea at least went through an actual phase of like revival and stuff, right? And yeah, so, that's... And so then... But it's then it's like that's gone. Yeah, it feels like it feels more like second grade awakening revival, mm-hmm. where everything becomes a burned over district. Well, it's, and kind it's of not like, that there wasn't real good fruit, and that there wasn't mm-hmm. good fruit mixed with the bad, but it was just so much bad in there too. Right? Well, it's like if your antibodies don't actually kill the virus, then the virus comes back right. twice as strong and regroups, and it's, Cast it's that like one demon and you, seven come back. Exactly. Yeah. If you can't actually, if Christianity meets the pagan East, and then they have a struggle. There are places and times where Christianity just wins, which is great, but a lot of time what happens is you end up getting this weird symbiotic relationship that's just perverse and weird. And Well, and the blowback can just be really hard, too. If you think even just to the early church, Jerusalem, you have 120 people in the upper room praying. Jesus has appeared to like 600 people. Pentecost happens, and then... Thousands of people are added to the church day by day, like just a massive 
revival, explosive growth of the church. And that lasts for some time, and then God's enemies regroup, and they come back, and they just persecute the crap out of the church and scatter it. And within a few years, there's not much faithful Christianity left in Jerusalem. It's just been, it's just been yeah, expunged. Right. And, and some of that's people caving and denying the faith, and some of it's people just picking up their families and moving. And you, so you can see that sort of thing play out time and time again, too, in mm-hmm. other places. Yeah, that's interesting. How did we get here? Taylor Swift? <laughs> Taylor Swift. Yeah, Taylor Thank Swift. You, Taylor How Swift. did we get to Taylor Swift? I have no idea. We were talking about how romantic Ben was? Yeah, we were talking about romance and yeah. sexlessness. Right. And then... I forget. Okay, well... I have no idea how have no Taylor idea. Swift showed up. <laughs> I feel like I might be responsible, but I don't think so. I think that you were. Well, I said, let me give you my take on Taylor Swift and gave what we went down that road... But, but did I just like make a Taylor Swift joke out of nowhere or something? You, you might have done. Or were uh, you talking about the Super Bowl? No, nah, I don't think so. Nope. There's no way to know. We'll never know. We were talking about images of Taylor Swift being everywhere. Yeah, but something had to trigger that. Trigger I know, that. I know. I think I, I just... made a, some kind of dumb Taylor Swift joke. Yeah. You said that she was a man. No, but that was no, after... no, no. It was, it was because Jake was People Magazine's <laughs> oh, something. Yeah, could... <laughs> Sexiest man of the year. Yeah, and, 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 and then you said it's Taylor Swift and, actually is and the sexiest I, I, man of I the said, year. I said, my joke was I thought Taylor Swift was the sexiest man of the year. Yeah. Right. And pe- and there you go. That's that was right. my stupid Taylor Swift joke. Right. And then off we went. Off we went. Yeah. Yeah. So it was my introduction. Right. Okay. <laughs> and all these things are deeply related. <laughs> yeah, deeply related. Hey, <laughs> it's Valentine's Day. It's or Valentine's Day. talk and talk about the church, naturally. Rom- rom-coms Day. or something. Yeah. At some point in here, I will give my take on... Killers of the Flower Moon, a deeply romantic movie, <laughs> story of Leonardo DiCaprio trying to seducing seducing and trying to, attempting to murder his native wife to take her oil rights. Good stuff, but sounds good. Yeah, I wanted to give my take. You guys have not seen that movie, but I'm not going to let that stop us from talking about it. I think we'll maybe in the near future of Sanity at the Movies, we'll do more stuff like ah, one of us has seen something, might as well talk about it. We're not all going to yeah, like and believe me. No reason for you guys to see Killer of the Flower Moon. Killer of the... F- killers, killers of... Killers of the Sailor Moon. Yes. Flowers of the... <laughs> killer Moon. Killer Moon. Flowers of the Killer Moon. Flower for... That sounds like an awesome movie. <laughs> flowers of the Killer Moon. Yeah. I'd watch Killer... I mean, not, frankly, Killers of the Flower Moon sounds like an awesome movie. If you don't... If that's just that title. Yeah, like, it does. Ooh, who are these killers and what's the Flower Moon? Yep. Turns out, boring people that do boring stuff. Boo. But we'll get to it. But yeah, I think I guess we're talking all things romance today. What deeply romantic movies have you guys seen lately that you would either <laughs> recommend or not recommend for our listeners? But I'll tell you what Amanda and I watched last night. Valentine's Day Eve. Valentine's Day mood. Eve. Yeah, that's right. Flipped on Breakfast Club. Hadn't seen it in a long time. 80s classic. John Hughes, John Hughes, he, Molly the voice Ringwald, of a generation, Ali Sheedy, Emilio Estevez, Judd Hirsch, Judd Hirsch, and Anthony Michael Hall. Don't you forget about me? Yeah, that's right. That's right. I did forget about that, but yes, that's the. You forgot about the iconic song from Bucks Breakfast Club? I just forgot to associate the two together. They literally told you not to forget I, about them. Oh, it's I right know. there in the instructions. I know, and I did. It, well, it had been a really long time since I'd seen it. And I have a real soft spot for the John Hughes of it all, and the, but 
Breakfast Club was never one of those that I'd seen a lot. I'd seen it maybe once or twice, and it's been years. What's your favorite John Hughes? Oh, man. I don't know. Disclaimer, they all suck. But what's in your memory? You go back to them. So yesterday, I might have said beforehand, I might have said Breakfast Club. But now I feel like I have to say 16 Candles. But if I saw 16 Candles, I might think, oh, my goodness, are you serious? So I have no idea. I really don't, because there's so much trash that makes it into these movies that I think people have to understand people the discourse the film twitter discourse about John Hughes is kind of always snarky because there's so so much that doesn't hold up that even pagans would say doesn't hold up about the sex politics whatever in his movies people have to understand he wrote kids like using kid dialogue that he had an ear for in a way that was really special at the time that that you don't you just can't clock now yeah. but those movies did feel really fresh and alive. And like this guy actually listens to the way that kids talk and the way they think and the way they feel. And there, there is some of that really does pop and come through it in those movies still to this day and did in breakfast club last night. But man, I imagine some of our listeners grew up with breakfast club. Remember breakfast club, have nostalgia for breakfast club. Maybe are in the same boat. They haven't gone back to it for a while. I recommend against it. I've never seen, I don't know of any, actually what's that one late John Hughes movie with, Baby's Day Out. No, keep going. Curly Sue. Did he do Curly Sue? <sighs> that was a very unfortunate. I think that's one of his. It was like nineties. But he did, he would, he like had his whole little company. Like he would executive produce things. There's things that aren't directed by him that are kind of. Mm-hmm. He wrote the scripts. There were all the Home Alone sequels. I really think, and I don't. I'm not a huge fan of it, but I really think Home Alone might actually be John Hughes's best movie, uh, which to me is like a two star movie. But no. As much as like it's he, annoying. Did, so he wrote the script for that. Yeah, he wrote. I mean, yeah, he didn't direct it. It's he, a yeah, that's for Columbus joint. Yeah, but I think John Hughes is like he's the voice he's behind. He's the, the auteur. Okay. More than that hack, Christopher Columbus. Quite frankly, um, sure, true hack. But uh, yeah, Curly Sue, nineteen ninety one. There you go. I mean, wow. that's like in the Uncle Buck. Another Jim Belushi. Oh man, is it terrible? He did Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, which I think you have to. I know Jake's never like, seen that either. Ugh. Yeah, I hate, I that, hate that. that's the kind of movie that, like, yeah. Well, I don't want to insult any of our listeners, but it's a little bit like Monty Python. Like, like bros all know the lines from Monty Python, and they can say them. And there's like an annoying subclass of people that love Monty Python, or there's an annoy, annoying subclass of people that every time they see the word fragile, they say fragile because they grew up with. And it's fine. And there's a, and there's it's a, good to like things. Yeah. We like liking things. We're pro liking things. Yeah, But we're also snotty, terrible people who can look down on people for liking things. And that's one that I like to look down on you for and, liking. Yeah. Jake often is the defender of humanity. He's people's sexiest <laughs> man, as we said. He, he loves the people. They think he's sexy. And he's like, if people like this, it must be good. But uh, Not people, with that one. People like me, I'm good. But yeah, not that's like Jake's like, everybody likes this, so it must be dumb movie. That's that right. and Christmas Story, actually. Yeah, are, both of um, those. Uh, we just pulled two of them. And I think uh, both of those are just fine. Um, yeah. But also, people love and them. And you're entitled to be wrong. More than they deserve. I feel entitled. <laughs> so, Breakfast Club. Yes, Breakfast Club. So, let me tell you how I came to it. It was one of those weird things where it had been, actually been in my mind. I spoke at the local private Christian school's high school chapel yesterday morning. And I was assigned the topic of dealing with daily difficulties. Mm. And so, I had to put myself in the shoes of the different types of 
high school kids. And that's not a metaphor. Jake stole a bunch of teenagers' shoes. <laughs> I did, yeah, and I wore them around. Yeah, like heels and like all the different kinds of shoes. Half of chapel, Crocs, half a, half of chapel was just me up there trying on different people's shoes. Um, it was creepy. Yeah, it was really weird. No, no. So I, I just had a. I preached on on Sunday on James one on trials, and I thought, okay, dealing with daily difficulties, difficulties are trials. Let me just sort of riff on Sunday's sermon, but I've got to translate it. Sundays are more, much more focused on families, on husbands and fathers and mothers and wives and kids too, and high school kids and that sort of thing. But this is just part of the puzzle, right? So I was like, well, how do I translate all of this into high school? So I started thinking through types and you've got the, the jock, the brain, the princess, the criminal, the recluse, right? So... I, it was just sort of like in my mind because that movie's just, those are the types. Yep. So it was in my mind and the kids had been up late the last two nights. Amanda was like, can we just put the kids to bed early and watch a movie? I was like, yeah, that'd be fun. Put the kids to bed early. I opened up HBO Max or Max or whatever it's called. And I scrolled down to the Valentine's thing. And right there, like one of the first movies listed was Breakfast Club. And I was like, I was just thinking about this movie. John Hughes. Probably cute, fun, 80s, nostalgia, light, easy. Let's go. So we started watching it. And it popped up and it said rated R. And we were like, what? No way. Why is this movie rated R? And I was like, well, there's a, I think they smoke some weed or something. And it's probably drugs. So we started watching it. And uh, I mean, I guess there's a lot that you could say about the movie. But I was just really surprised by how crass and sexual it really was. So... Counterpoint, probably still not as crass and sexual as the actual experience of high school that a man oh, such as yourself had. Very true. Very true. Nowhere close. So maybe it's a great movie and John Hughes was just being accurate to his subject matter. I don't think that my high school experience is something that anybody wants to repeat on screen. Certainly not something I want to see again or replay in my own mind or have my kids see or know about. So... I disagree. There's my counterpoint to that. I mean, what I would say is if somebody wanted to make a, a movie that Accurately earned reflects, it, you know, yeah. that, that deserved to be about the subject matter. Sure, any, any subject can be done well and can be yeah. done in an edifying way. But The Breakfast Club and it. No, it's not. I mean, you're just going to have Judd Hirsch is just going to be really cruel to Molly Ringwald the whole movie. He's going to s- s- be full of innuendo. You're going to get an upskirt shot of Molly Ringwald, actually, which I had no memory of. Judd Hirsch has to duck under the table and hide because he's not supposed to be in the room anymore. And then we're just going to, he lands between her legs and we see his point of view. And then he tries to do things. And so it's just like all that sort of stuff that I don't know how you forget about it or just sort of like passes over your head or maybe you watched a lot of the TV versions and so it was cut. But it's a lot of that, a lot of innuendo, a lot of Judd Hirsch really grilling Molly Ringwald on whether or not she's a virgin and suggesting all the different things she could have possibly done in graphic detail. So a lot of that type of thing. Ali Sheedy talking about being a nymphomaniac and describing the things that she's done. Oh, just kidding. I'm actually just a, uh, whatever you call an obsessive liar. Not a necrophiliac. <laughs> no. Not, not a narcolepsis. Uh, not a nymphomaniac. Uh, uh, that's what she said. What is a liar? Kleptomaniac? No, that's, that's a, th- a thief. Ben, what's the name for a chronic obsessive liar. liar? A chronic obsessive, liar. Compulsive. Can't, can't think of it. Compulsive liar. That's it. It's just okay, it's, it's yeah. a compulsive uh. liar. That's it. That's all it is. So yeah. So we watched it. We we, we were we had a, a little 
Lego project going on, so we were half watching it. So, but still, pathological liar is the other phrase pathological. There you go. About. Yeah, there it is. Anyhow, wasn't as cute and fun as we hoped it would be. So I saw a lot of those '80s movies when I was a young person, and they played a certain way. But Breakfast Club, I only ever saw when I was older, so it never like had any nostalgia for me. I don't love the Brat Pack. In general, I don't think there are 80s movies like Say Anything that I have a great deal of fondness with, like the whole early Cusack run, stuff like that. But I could even have a little nostalgia for Ferris Bueller, although I think Ferris Bueller is a punk and I wouldn't want to be his friend. And I just like the whole premise of that movie is what if an obnoxious guy was obnoxious? Like, don't care about it. But I could have a little nostalgia for that. But the actual Brat Pack, I never really liked much of anything that they were in. They had that Western, what was the Brat Pack Western called? Young Young, uh, guns. young Guns. Oh, yeah, yeah. Young, young Guns. guns. Yeah. My mom loved that movie. Yeah, I wonder why. But uh, Breakfast Club, I came to old enough that I was just like, this sucks. Like, this is just a bad movie. I I like the idea of putting a bunch of teenagers in a room together, doing kind of a chamber piece, and, and taking it with the seriousness of a Tennessee Williams play. Like, that's actually a good idea for a movie or a stage play. Well, and I've been in – I was in situations in high school – I can think of where you have these unlikely, I was thrown into a mix right. for an extended period of time with unlikely people. And if you can have a breakthrough vulnerable moment, you can have this bonding experience in high school because you're all going through whatever you're going through. And then you find out this magical thing that you have more in common than you think. But really, Claire is right. No, on Monday, on Monday, this never happened. Yeah, to me, that's the real movie. To me, that's the... Right. That's it. That's the question. Like, I'm going to talk about this when we get to flowers, killers of the flower, Sailor Moon. The, the, it was sometimes when you have a piece of material, you want the artist to ask the right questions about it. And John Hughes is very uninterested in asking the right questions. He wants to ask, like, what's your secret pain? Why is everyone an outsider, actually? How are we all actually connected here? Right. Which is fine. I mean, that should be part of oh, it. Oh, we are all the same. We just have our different masks and ways of dealing with it. We all have pain at home. We all have expectations. We all have things we feel we can't live up to. We all have pressure we're under where we feel like we just can't. We're all, we all have different ways of protecting ourselves from our pain and covering it up. And eventually, uh, given enough time, we're going to break that down. And then we're going to, even as we break it down, we're going to get scared and fight each other and sabotage each other and step on each other and then we're going to ask the question are we're just going to become our parents aren't we look at what we're doing to each other we're, we hated each other we bonded now we're tearing each other apart all within the space of detention and then are we still going to be friends like we became friends are we still going to be friends when we get out of here yes or no and then they decide first they're like no and then they decide yes and then it's over yeah and we're supposed to believe that they're just all changed now they're all going to be friends they're not all going to be friends that's not what's going to happen i mean i don't know i think it's easy to be a grumpy old man about these kinds of things even when you're not quite an old man which none of us is but it is easy to say like actually you are all your parents also i think it's true that it is the right of every generation to question the generation that comes before it to some degree and to figured the, their own way forward and to like there's always going to be movies about rebellious youth and that's not we can't just totally say that's a terrible genre well there's a reality that everybody has to go to as they mature into men and women 
They have to differentiate from their parents. And to differentiate, they have to judge. And there's a way to do that that's respectful and sweet, but allows you to become your own person. But when that's stifled, what you get is rebellion. Right. You actually have to, as a parent, want that maturity, invite that maturity, and help the kids work through the process of differentiating, which includes some degree of judgment of you, but also includes you being open and honest about your sins, weaknesses, and faults and flaws and not being defensive about it. They have to be able to say some things were wrong. There were real sins. They have to be able to say that. And you have to be able to acknowledge when that's true and give them permission to acknowledge that and still call them to honor and respect you and honor and respect and repeat what's good while trying to not repeat what's bad. Right. But somebody making a movie about that process and even about a teenager getting it wrong, we shouldn't just bristle at that. As Absolutely not. Well, because so many, I mean, so many parents end up creating the problem. Right. Right. As kids differentiate, you feel that judgment and you do get defensive. And then if the more defensive you get and the more you try to lock it down and assert your, you just create the problem and you, you push kids into rebellion or a kind of conformity and submissiveness that does not allow them to mature. So it's either arrested development or rebellion unless you're going to walk down a healthy road together. and. Any movie about uh, any one of those three things or about all three of them at once is could be worth making because it really shows how that works. And it's important. It's important for parents to understand. You're either going to be trying to keep these kids out of a state of arrested development, or you're going to push them into open rebellion, or you're going to help them maturely differentiate as adult into adults. And that's messy, and it's different for every family, but... Putting that on screen is a great thing to do because it clarifies things. That Those are stories worth telling. Yeah. The problem is when the filmmaker starts to assert that the subjective point of view of the teenager is actually the objective point of view of reality and therefore right. every authority figure is stupid. And like this, the evil bumbling principal in Breakfast Club is such a lame pandering <laughs> character. And the wise cust- custodian who calls him on it. Oh, yeah. John Hughes always does that. I hate it. The wise custodian, he's down there in the basement, and he have this whole scene where the the principal's like, what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be John Lennon. No, I'm serious. <laughs> custodian's all like, dude, kids aren't changing. You are. You're yeah. Crusty and curmudgeonly. And- I hate that. I'd <laughs> say that John Hughes and Aaron Sorkin are neck and neck for writing Straw Man just to knock down. It's the yeah. worst. There's that famous scene from Uncle Buck where he go the secretary won't let the kids do such and such at the school that Uncle Buck tells her off and he ends with some punchline about like, why don't you get a rat to gnaw that mole off your face, you dumb, ugly lady? Because she's got a big mole on her face that the filmmakers you put know, on so put that on you could have that line. So you could have that line and it's just so transparently like, let's set this character up to be ugly and dumb. So good old man of the people, Uncle Buck can, and it's just like Sorkin does that all the time, of course, in West mm-hmm. Wing and stuff. I hate that kind of, yeah. I mean, we have to have villains and we have to have our heroes take them down and there's nothing more satisfying. And you have to set that up. But right. But you have to make it feel organic. You can't just. Right. Yes, to feel inevitable and natural. And if it can feel three-dimensional too, like maybe there's a cost to just dressing somebody down even when it's someone who deserves it. Like maybe that could be good too. So zero stars to any scene like that. 
in a John Hughes movie. The principal in Ferris Bueller is horrible. Like, I, I know, like, Cracked.com always has these articles where they're like, characters that you, you actually were in the right. Like, Ferris Bueller's principal was just doing his job. And blah, blah, blah. So I don't want to be that guy. But also, come on, he was just doing his job. Ferris was a punk. Okay, any any more thoughts on Breakfast Club? I like the makeover scene with Ali Sheedy. That scene always makes me tear up, even though I don't like the movie. It's a sweet moment. I realize that she's actually I the epitome of what we would say was attractive in the '90s, and like when we came up, and then they turn her into a Sweet Valley High girl, and it's and then she actually just becomes another face in the crowd, actually. right? Like she just becomes normal, yeah, and less compelling, less interesting. But whatever, it worked for. It worked for Emilio Estevez because he could see her face now. So good for Emilio Estevez. Gordon Bombay, coach of the Mighty Ducks, mm. right there. Yeah, another excellent and fair movie about kids <laughs> growing up. And yes, <laughs> one of the best. One of the best. I did love the Mighty Ducks movies, particularly. Oh, we all did. I did D two. D two was D2. yeah, a lot of fun. D two, which also has some gross sexual stuff that they throw in there. Really. It really does. Like the kids go to this, they get money and they go to this clothing shop and they're having women come out in lingerie. Oh, oh right, right, yeah. right, right, right. It was like, it was, it's, it's really gross. It's like all these little boys, prepubescent boys watching this stuff. It's like Disney, you stink. Hey, at least it's got, what's his face? Is Joss Auckland in that? Probably. I can't remember now, but I think, yeah, he's the villainous coach of the other team or whatever. And you've got the, uh, those brothers, they're kind of like that Paul Newman movie, um, Flap shot there. They just beat everybody up. Yeah, the Bash Brothers. Bash Brothers, which who are based on the characters from Slapshot who are based on real hockey people. Anyway, the Mighty Ducks. Watch all three tonight, folks. <laughs> Valentine's Day special. Your wife will thank you. Yes, your wife will thank you. Because she'll get a lot done while you're occupied. Yeah. D three. Saw it in the theaters. I remember Goldberg. You remember he's all fat and Jewish. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty funny. Yeah. His uh, uncle's Aaron Spelling. That's how he gets the models to model the lingerie for. That's right. There's a time. His uncle's not Aaron Spelling. Goldberg, he gets, he's on skates, you see, and he goes down some stairs and he's like, whoa, I'm fat and stupid. And then he gets tangled up in a hose and he spins around and it is some quality entertainment. Sounds good. That, that's in D3? Yeah, that's D3. I mean, I it's probably... There's I don't think I ever saw it. Thing. Ben, you never saw D3? I don't think so. Stuck with D1 and D2. Yes, so. I mean, I think... I know I saw all three, but I feel like D3 didn't stick around. I feel like you guys are not true disciples of Coach Gordon Bombay. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. <laughs> don't <laughs> Actually, in D3, Coach Gordon Bombay, who I, I will always call by all three of those <laughs> titles or whatever... <laughs> One Every title. time you see Emilio Estevez. Yeah. He, Coach Gordon Ubabe, I think Emilio Estevez. He's a wrestler in high school. He just wanted to cash a check. Like he, because Co- Coach Gordon Bombe, he's like, I'm leaving, Charlie. I can't be your coach anymore. And he basically is at the very beginning. And then Charlie's all mad because Coach Gordon Bombe is no longer his coach. And then like at the very end, he has to bond with the new coach. And that's the whole drama. And then at the very end, Coach Gordon Bombay is like standing in the... Crowd. To the crowd, and he's like, "You did it, Charlie!" And then he like walks off and into the night oh, or something. Terrible. <laughs> um, so Emilio Estevez probably cashed, cashed a nice check though. So I'm sure it's the should. last time he's been in a movie. Has he ever been in a movie? Yeah, he kind of. That's what you get for for denying the family screen name. Yeah. I think he did right. I, um, I do too. I'm glad he didn't. He decided not to be Sheen. All right, Ben. Mm. We need a romantic 
movie. So far, mm. we have no recommendations for people besides don't watch The Breakfast Club. Or The Mighty Ducks. Or I The guess. Mighty Ducks, yeah. Yeah. You can watch The Mighty Ducks. You just can't watch them tonight. Right. Oh. <laughs> Let's see. What? Top movies for Emilio Estevez. Breakfast Club, Mighty Ducks, Young Guns, Outsiders, The Way, St. Elmo's Fire, Young Guns 2, D2, Maximum Overdrive, D3. Maximum Overdrive is a classic. You guys <laughs> are you guys one. familiar with that one? No. no. It's a Stephen King. Stephen King directed it. Oh, I know what this is. He was yeah. coked out of his mind at the time. He barely remembers directing it. It's this crazy movie about all the machines are possessed. Like, like table saws suddenly are coming at people and trucks are trying to run them down. And there's a famous scene where a Coke machine starts spitting Cokes out and like murders an entire <laughs> little league team or something like that. It's a very ridiculous, not B, but like Z grade horror adventure film but Emilio Estevez is like the cool drifter with a he ends up with a rocket launcher or something like that anyway another movie not to watch amazing Maximum Overdrive oh let's see we saw Ang Lee's Sense and Sensibility months and months ago but it was great yeah really good stuff Alan Rickman Alan Rickman our famous audio drop from the bookening Frailty Thy Name is Brandon comes from that movie yeah I was thinking about that movie this weekend it's really cool I was at I was at this youth conference and oh well I don't know what the point of this story is except for content but <laughs> the speaker the first night so I was speaking at this youth youth conference the speaker of the first night was talking about all the ways that media and entertainment they get us and how even a British accent will fool you into thinking somebody's smart or sophisticated or more attractive or physically attractive than they are just because of and people know that and we'll use it to exploit you. And then he went on about how all the girls in the room go weak in the knees for Darcy's wet hair. And I love, 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 love you. And you've bewitched me body. And so and they uh-huh. all were like nuts, giggly, laughing like he got him. And so it's top of my top of my talk. I made fun of them in that movie. But I, I was thinking again just about how much better Alan Rickman would have been in that role. Ah, uh, he's awesome. Nobody ever casts Darcy for the beginning of the story. Nobody ever casts right. the Darcy that you would legitimately not like and think was a snob. And that is a great failing, and particularly the Karen Knightley, where you're just like, oh, this guy's kind of shy and cute. Like, no, he's not. He's supposed to come off as pride right now. That's like the entire point of the story. A hack that did Darkest Hour, what's that guy's name? Joe Wright. Joe Wright. I don't know. Hacks strong. Hacks strong. Darkest Hour is pretty good. Yeah, Darkest Hour is just fine. It's maybe the least objectionable of his movies. Pretty silly, but yeah, it is. What's his fate? What's, what's Gary Oldman? Yeah, Winston Churchill is going to like be depressed and then get on a train, and all the oh. British citizenry is going to rally and be like, "You just need to show those Germans what's so for Winston." And it's very silly. The worst <laughs> biopic writing, but yeah, <laughs> Gary Oldman has a great time. <laughs> Gary Oldman has a good old time. Yeah. As he would. As he would. Yeah. Well, no, it's a great movie. You got lots of good actors. You got Kate Winslet giving an awesome performance. She's wonderful. She is really great. Pre-Titanic. Very young ingenue, Kate Winslet. Yep. You've got you got lots of people giving great performances. You got Ang Lee's sense of landscape, which helps a lot. And the ground makes the movie feel something. Makes it feel... Uh, Ang Lee has this way what, of what doing something. He does it in Crouching Tiger. He does mm-hmm. it in the Ice Storm. People really, 
he makes it feel like his it's a very uh eastern sensibility it's yep. like his characters and the, their emotion is arising out of the landscape it's like mm-hmm. are we are all behaving a certain way because we are on this wind blown more and mm-hmm. we wouldn't we wouldn't have these animal passions percolating just beneath the surface if we were in a different location. There's like something about nature itself that's imbuing us with, but or, it's not or, a, or something about nature that's that's ref, it's in us and nature reflects it. Yes. Either way you want to put it, but both it's like a symbiotic thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it's it's pretty cool. Which um, is not Jane Austen, but but mm-hmm. it's but it's great. Yeah, and it fits well with Sense and Sensibility. Which has some of that flavor. Even I want to say, even the BBC version of Sense and Sensibility I've seen has some of that same flavor because of the way the scenes are and where they are. Right. You have to use the outdoor landscape somehow. You're going to. Well, and I suppose it re- it reflects Marianne's whole. It does view reflect of, Marianne's view of, view of the world. Yeah, yeah, it does fit with her. Which is the wrong view, I guess. But right. Ish, but right. I will be so bold as to say. I think the Sense and Sensibility movie is in some way. Now, people know I think I should have my bona fides to longtime listeners as a Jane Austen fan. I think the movie might best the novel in some ways. It's not my favorite Jane. It's her first. And I know this might be blasphemy to a certain kind of lady listener, maybe. But it's not. She didn't really write the men very well in that one. There's not a lot of them. The cap, the Alan Rickman's character, whatever, Captain. Colonel Brandon. Colonel Brandon, yeah. He's not really in it. He doesn't really get to do anything, which is always kind of a problem in Jane Austen. Like her men can be a little bit two dimensional, but well, she writes what she knows. She sticks to the perspective and point of view of the women, that's, which that's is fine. But with Darcy and Knightley, especially, she fleshes them out and their side of things out enough that they connect. Colonel mm-hmm. Brandon is just kind of a story point, as is whatever the character that we'll never remember the the clergyman, the huge huge Jackman or not Hugh Jackman's character. Wolverine. Now, that, now that you said that, uh, I can't pull him. Hugh Grant, Hugh Grant's character. Hugh Grant is really wonderful as that character in right. his movie. And the thing is, Emma Thompson writes nice scenes for him in particular. Like she fleshes out that romance. She gives a little bit of a payoff to it. I mean, maybe Jane Austen is better at, obviously Jane Austen is better at doing the things that she wants to do and is interested in doing like satire and humor mm. and stuff like that. But in terms of just having a satisfying experience with heroes and villains and a romance that you feel like was properly developed and paid off sense and sensibility the movie is actually superior to sense and sensibility the book that's my take no comment i haven't read it in 30 years or 20 years or whatever i remember when we did it on the booking jake you'll back me up on this probably it was like the least of our yeah. It, it I, felt I, like maybe if we'd started with it, it would have been just fine. But coming to it after, after as we Pride did. After and Prejudice, after Emma. And after mm-hmm. Mansfield after Park. After Mansfield Park. Which mm-hmm. is its own kind of masterpiece and really special in its own way. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember feeling the same way about it. Yeah. You have my back. It, I have your back on that. Huh. Okay. It just feels a little thin. I yeah, don't know. Mansfield Park has some very strongly written men. And it's just yeah. a, a lot of intrigue and interest that is atypical of a lot of her stories. Uh-huh. Mansfield Park, you could also say, is something of an unsatisfying romance because Jane Austen ultimately resolves it in a very pat way just because she's not... She doesn't she, care. She doesn't care. But it's a fascinating... What she cares more about is giving the comeuppances to mm-hmm. various characters like... Aunt Norris. Yeah. Yeah. One of the most terrible villains in... The cat literature. from Harry yeah. Potter. The cat from Harry remember. Potter. Mrs. Mm-hmm. Uh, Norris. Yeah, Mrs. Norris. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But all the stuff with, yeah, 
the bad girl and Edmund mm-hmm. and Fanny's Fanny's home life and like mm-hmm. it's yeah. all like all that stuff is really interesting, especially for her to include. Yeah. Just don't see that much of that world. Yeah. In Austin. And to have her paint it. Yeah, it's not a perfect novel. It's not a delight like Emma or Pride and Prejudice, but it might in some ways it's my favorite. Just I mean I mean they're all my favorite. All three of those are my favorite. I mean but. it if it if you're an Austin fan, it'll be your favorite the way that Temple of Doom might be your favorite Indiana Jones. Right. Like you're gonna have to admit that Raiders of the Lost Ark is the Indiana Jones movie. Just like you have to admit that Pride and Prejudice is the Jane Austen book. And you might say, well, Emma's my favorite. And Emma fills the Last Crusade and, spot. And the Last Crusade's my favorite. But objectively, just in terms of being tight and funny and accessible and having a good, compelling story and not having a lot of fluff and not taking time to engage you and all, all that sort of th- like Raiders is Raiders and Pride and Prejudice is Pride and Prejudice. And then because you spend so much time on Emma and Pride and Prejudice or Raiders and Last Crusade, when you come to Temple of Doom, you're like, oh, you know what? People don't like this one so much, but I'm really glad there's a third installment of Indiana Jones that feels very different than the other Indiana Jones movies. And I've already exhausted the pleasures a little bit of the other two, so something a little bit more challenging, even even in its imperfections, begin to have their attractions. Their charms, yeah. Yeah, so all that to say, if you haven't seen Ang Lee's Sense and Sensibility, there's like this whole 90s spat of Jane Austen. You've got your Gwyneth Paltrow. Emma. Emma, Emma. which is good in its way. certainly has the best badly done scene of the Yep. Two or three or four. I have a lot of fondness for that movie. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, like, I like that movie. Just Colin fine. Firth, Pride and Prejudice. Colin is... Firth, Pride and Prejudice is a classic. This I like is great. it. If you could take Karen Knightley and plug her into that one. Oh, then you have a masterpiece. You'd have a masterpiece because I don't. I, that, that Elizabeth Bennett's just fine, but she doesn't pop. No, and Karen Knightley is the best. Really? Elizabeth Bennett? I've never seen it. No, she really is just amazing. She's fantastic in that. Darcy role. sucks in that one, and huh. but she is both in how he's performed and how he's written. Yeah, there's nothing about Darcy. There's very little about Darcy to actually like. If you like Mister Darcy, if you like Mister Wickham, there's stuff to like about Darcy. If you're Lydia, there's stuff to like about Darcy. Hmm. But it but it just shifts the masculinity and the goodness. And the actual nature of Austin's sense of romance, everything shifts down. And so Darcy becomes Wickham, and Wickham becomes a scoundrel even worse than Wickham. Huh. And the romance is, ends up having, they require it to have a very windswept feel. And that's just like the opposite. It's yeah. just the uh, absolute opposite of what Austin is doing. Wickham is able to give you the windswept feel, but he has no character. And the whole romance is Darcy's a man that Elizabeth can actually respect, admire, and have gratitude. And that fuels the real romance of their relationship. That's just not the movie that they made. Yeah. Well, Jane Austen and all of her great romances, and she didn't, I didn't say this. She said it. She did it. Okay. It's not my fault. She is obviously attracted to men who are dangerous, who have a little bit of edge, who they have can, a darkness to them. Who are a little dark and who can totally put the women in their place in a way that is not fun at the time, that doesn't feel romantic in the moment at all. But they all, for all of their danger, they all feel 
incredibly safe for those women. Yeah, they're not dangerous in the sense that Mr. Rochester is dangerous in right. Jane Eyre, where it's just this guy's probably a serial killer. He's got he's a woman unhinged. locked in. He's dangerous and he's a bad boy. He literally has a woman locked in his attic. Right. Like, yeah, he's a bad boy. No, Mr. Darcy is dangerous because Mr. Darcy can actually put you in your place. If there's something that's immature about you or bad about you. He will you, see it you, and he will judge you and he will say it. And Mr. Knightley, famously, <laughs> that times 20. Right. <laughs> but if Mr. Darcy is for you, he may see and say those things, but he will also own absolutely every one of your problems. Your problems are his problems. Your pain is his pain. Your family is his family. Your family problems are his family problems. Your shame is his shame. And that's the beauty and romance of Darcy. Like, that's how he wins. He just decides he loves this woman, period. And so her pain is his pain. Her family is his family. Her shame is his shame. Her family shame is his family shame. Her problems are his problems. And then he goes about and owns them all and solves them all and embraces them all, including the shame of it. And what can Elizabeth do? <laughs> it's over. He wins. And nobody knows how to capture that in a movie. They all suck. They hate it. Well, it's mm-hmm. why we like that. It's not a great movie, I wouldn't say, but it's why the Gwyneth Paltrow Emma is actually pretty good because... Uh, it actually lets that scene breathe and sting. Yeah, and just the that guy, Jeremy Northam, Northam. he actually does feel that way. He's, he's not... He's not overly sexualized or anything like that. He just feels like a slightly older guy who's like, I love you so much that I want you to get in line right now. And I think it's the only Austin adaptation that really knocks that out of the park. I like Colin Firth just fine, but Colin Firth's going to go for that swim and we're going to have him in the bathtub. And like Colin Firth is a sex object in yeah. that movie in a way that's the generations of moms have enjoyed now. But I like that. I like the 1995 Pride and Prejudice a lot. I'm a big fan. Don't pull out the pitchforks. I like them all. You can pull them out for me liking too many things. I mean, I like that. I like that Emma. The Anya Taylor-Joy. Anna Taylor-Joy Emma for crying out loud. I never saw that one. Uh, do not like. It's very uh, twee and kind of stupid. <laughs> but uh, I like a lot of it too. I, I, I still watch that, that. I just been raking that Pride and Prejudice over the coals. I'll still watch it from time to time. It's yeah. got some good moments. I don't know why I scenes. forgive Emma, but not Pride that Pride and Prejudice, because I really just I can't bring myself to watch it. I don't know. And Emma's my favorite. You'd think I'd be I'd hold its adaptations to a highest higher standard. <laughs> I, know. I, I love the most unforgivable Emma adaptation of all time. So <laughs> what? Lula. Oh yeah. <laughs> We've talked about that on this podcast. Yeah. Hey, if Paul Rudd I, just, I defend it. <laughs> if Paul Rudd manned up, you'd have a, you'd have quite a movie. And you already have quite a fun movie and quite a 90s. Hey, who doesn't like a plaid skirt and plaid knee-high socks and plaid everything and computers that you can pick out outfits on? We all like that. We have blood. Blood. So, Ang Lee's Sense and Sensibility. Yep. Your favorite filmmaker. Farewell, my concubine. Eat, drink, man, woman. (laughs) All those. That weird Will Smith action movie that was shot at 48 frames a second. It just feels weird. Life of Pi. Life of Pi. Man, I haven't followed that guy for so long. I haven't seen any of his movies. (laughs) You know what? I, I would actually love to go back and watch especially now that I'm so sick of the whole Marvel machine, I think it'd be pretty fun to rewatch his Hulk. Because I think Divorced of Expectations, it's probably a pretty good Nick Nolte drama. (laughs) Well, it's going to have the problem of being horribly overwrought. 
Yes. But I think even that yeah. might be fun if I was in the right mood for it or not. Maybe. Or something. I mean, I like to watch Jennifer Conley cry for two hours. <laughs> Josh Lucas is the venal bad guy. That's And all that weird comic book stuff. I don't know. I think if, if I was in the right mood, I might really vibe on that thing. Sure. But maybe not. It's it might possible. Just, it might drive me nuts. I don't know. Yeah. yeah it kind of drove know. me nuts at the time. It drove me nuts at the time. You got Nick Nolte and doing like like full on getting towards his warrior phase. <laughs> Disclaimer, Angley, not Ben's famous f- favorite filmmaker. Correct. I mean, Crouching Tiger was pretty fun back in the day. I have not seen Crouching Tiger since the early 2000s. Yeah, me either. It's probably since the year 2000. I think I saw when it. When it came out, yeah. I saw it a couple times in the theaters maybe and then just never rewatched it for whatever reason. Yeah. All right. I've got one movie I will recommend. Whoa, wait, wait. Oh, yeah. Okay, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. I'm gonna I'm gonna take us in different directions. So if you got uh, you away from romance, no, no, no. I've got I, I have a romance. What I think we should do is we should recommend the the actual '80s nostalgia rom com thing. The actual, I think we've got the period Austin piece. I think it is Sense and Sensibility. Yes, we should just. I don't know. We should just throw a couple out there. A couple '80s movies. No, a, just romance. The, the alternative to. My failed Breakfast Club. So and then, and, and then we should, I don't know, just some different eras we should throw out on the table just for people. If they were actually looking for recommendations, we should. Like val- for Valentine's movies. For Valentine's, let's just yeah. hit like the 40s to 50s. The, oh, sure. Yeah, definitely. Well, we've done a couple on this podcast. So I It Happened One Night is a classic for a reason. If you want to watch Sexy Himbo, Clark Gable. In, in, in his prime, wearing suspenders and no shirt, ladies. You husbands might not want to turn that movie on for Valentine's Day, or maybe you do. I don't know. But that's a classic. What are the classics we talked about on this podcast? Philadelphia well, Story. Was, Philadelphia Story was a big hit, and uh, we all love that one. That one got the most like people thanking us for recommending it. Like, Hey, I would have never have known this movie existed or mm-hmm. watched it apart from your recommendation, and now it's a favorite of ours. A lot of that. That movie is a dense and witty, and by dense, I mean full of incident, full of life, full of, like, just full. It's really snappy dialogue. And uh, Cary Grant has his own kind of danger and edge in that movie that's uh, something to behold. Shop Around the Corner. Shop Around the Corner. Yeah, that's a classic. I think maybe it, it doesn't quite work for what we're talking about just because it's it, so you got you to wait for Christmas. Mm-hmm. But also, if you're just in the mood for a great romance, it is one of the best. We just... I just watched Swing Time again. Yeah, and? I mean, it's just such a, I don't know, I love that movie. Yeah, it's a classic. Can we count Casablanca as a romance? Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, it's one of the greatest romances of all time. Yeah, it might just go for drama. That's why I was asking. Well, I throw that one out there. I love it. I'm going to stand way out on a limb, <laughs> go oh, way man. out. There you go. Way out there and say, I love Casablanca. I think it's pretty great. I'll go even further on a limb, but it's a wonderful life out there. <laughs> oh, man, you guys are... Uh, We're taking big taking, risks, taking some, big swings today. <laughs> some bold stands. All right, I'm going to take some actual bold stands here. We have not yet done this movie on this podcast. I hope we do. If you have not seen it, you should watch The Apartment, Billy Wilder's immortal classic, The Apartment with Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine, a very romantic movie. It is a a movie for adults about adult subject matter and that the whole gimmick of The Apartment is that it is a place where CEOs can take their girlfriends and their wives won't find out about it. It also happens to be the place where Jack Lemmon lives. So his character is this nebbishy little accountant who's 
working his way up the food chain in his company by letting the senior executives use his apartment. So it's a pretty racy premise. But he falls in love with a girl. And then, of course, an executive is meeting her at his apartment. And it's just, if you know anything about Billy Wilder, he's a very witty, very sophisticated, very fun filmmaker. And just in terms of things like setups and payoffs and little lines of dialogue that run through and lovable characters and a true romance, well-written where a character wakes up to his own nefariousness and, spoiler alert, maybe decides he shouldn't live like that. Um, Mm -hmm. So to put up with a little bit of 1960s era, kind of Mad Men era naughtiness, obviously nothing as explicit as the TV show Mad Men actually was, but that whole sort of, we've been sexually liberated and now women are our playthings. That that whole era, that brief era before second or third wave feminism was like, we're not your playthings. Yeah, uh, you got to kind of the, like the early James Bond era. You kind of have to put up with a little bit of that, but not in a way that I think happily married adults couldn't handle. And it's an absolutely classic movie. Certainly nothing as sexually subversive or gross as like some like it hot. The other Billy Wilder mm, classic quote unquote from the era. So that might be my classic movie recommendation. I'm just looking through my list of romance movies here. What I really like is the uh, Kenneth Branagh remake of Cinderella. Oh, yeah. That's a sweet one. I like that one a lot, too. I like that movie a lot. And What's-Her-Face is a real sweetheart. Lily James. Lily James. And, I don't know, the prince is some dude with (laughs) shoulders or something. But He doesn't get in the way. Yeah, he doesn't get in the way. He's just fine. And she's amazing. And she's actually allowed, for whatever reason, they decided not to, like, totally wokeify. I mean, it's got maybe some gestures. It's got the, that weird multi-ethnic Disney kingdoms that exist now where there's, like, a bunch of black people in the background of every shot. Just, like, hey, we're not. The story isn't set in the actual past. It's set in a fake past where people were nice to other. It's set in fairyland, Nathan. It's a distraction. <laughs> Make them all black for all I care. I don't care, but just don't distract me. Let me enjoy the story. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) Lily James is great. Yeah. I really like that movie a lot. Yeah, I like that movie a lot, too. I'd forgotten about it. It's great. I'm just looking through things here. It's been a long time since I've seen Sabrina. Where does that rank? It's in every single one of these lists. So Sabrina is also Billy Wilder, and he's a great writer and a great director, and it's a good movie. And I love Audrey Hepburn, and I'm always happy to watch her in anything. I think it's kind of boring. I think Humphrey Bogart maybe wasn't really there to play or is just miscast or something. I don't know. It's not my favorite. I always go back to it expecting to like it because it's got such pedigree. But it's I don't know that it holds up. I think I'd actually probably rather watch the Harrison Ford Sabrina. Sabrina. Never seen that. Never saw that one. It's pretty okay. It's fun and sweet. Harrison Ford, it's always nice to see. 90s is kind of like you were talking about with Temple of Doom, Jake. Like sometimes you just want more Harrison Ford in your life. So you're happy to watch a witness or a regarding Harry or Henry or whatever that is. You're not actually happy to watch those things, but maybe you're happy to watch a clear and present danger or a Sabrina or something like that or a working girl. Harrison Ford can be good. What are the other romantic movies that I love? If people haven't seen it, I think Holiday is in some ways my personal favorite above Philadelphia Story. Holiday stars Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn. And it was made a couple of years before huh. Philadelphia I Story. Seen Holiday either. Holiday's great. Holiday contributed to Katherine Hepburn becoming labeled as box office poison. It was not a popular movie at the time, but 
It's a lot of fun. It's got some of that 1930s, 1940s kind of, yeah, 1938. It's got some 1930s class consciousness that some people might find obnoxious. It's a very left-wing kind of, not left-wing in the way we think of it today, the really obnoxious Marxist way, but just in like, rich people are stupid and poor people are salt of the earth, kind of a Frank Capra kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So Cary Grant plays a young man who's made all his money and wants to take a holiday. He wants to figure out what most people work their whole lives and they don't even know what they're working for. I want to figure out what I'm working for before I do the rest of my work. So he's just closed a big business deal. Now he's going to go on a holiday. But he's got this fiance, this rich upper crust fiance who he fell in love with, whirlwind romance. And he thinks she's going to be the right woman to sort of share his love of life and disdain for pomposity and stuff. Turns out she might be the wrong woman for him. She might be a little snotty, but she's got this sister played by Katherine Hepburn who might be more his speed. So I don't know. I can't tell you what happens, but. I can't imagine. I can't figure it out. No idea. Very charming movie. I think so. Philadelphia story, stone cold classic. Love it. 10 out of 10, whatever. Also, it's kind of long and I don't always want to go back to it. If I'm in the mood for Cary Grant being charming and Katherine Hepburn doing the best thing that she does. Holiday is actually one of my favorites. Okay, cool. Good to know. Have you seen Ernst Lubitsch's Trouble in Paradise? Yes. Is that good? That's pretty naughty. It's very, uh, I mean, in an old movie, kind of pre-codish way. Lots uh-huh. of innuendo in the dialogue. I imagine a lot of our listeners wouldn't like it that much. It's kind of like mm, facile, glib characters, sophisticated mm-hmm. uh, sort of debauchery type stuff. If if you've ever seen any movie like that from the 1930s, there's that whole sort of, these characters are all charmingly cynical about their own sexuality sort of thing. I will recommend a different Lubitsch movie, which is Ninochka. This is a movie that people should watch. It stars the great Greta Garbo, and she plays a Russian lady who has to go to Paris to do something. I forget. She's like a Russian party member. And huh. she's against capitalism and all that. But then she goes to Paris on a mission and she falls in love with Melvin Douglas's character. And she maybe she starts to warm up to capitalism a little bit. And it's got a lot of the charm of Shop Around the Corner and the lovable characters. And it's, it's a great movie. I highly recommend it. You'll be glad you watched it. Cool. Yes. Ernst Lubitsch did some great stuff. He also did some sort of, for its time, very racy and not as good stuff. The movie that we actually just watched, which I guess I'd recommend, is called The Ghosted Mrs. Muir. If you like Rex Harrison, if you don't have enough Rex Harrison in your life. and you want a sequel to The Ghost and Mr. Chicken, I think. It is a prequel to The Ghost and Mr. Mr. Chicken. I know Mr. Chicken does not feature in this, sadly. Ghost and Mr. Chicken, an overrated film among those who care at all about it. <laughs> <laughs> People of our dad's generation have a fondness for... My dad has a fondness for that movie. For Don Knotts and sort of stuff, but it's just not a very good movie. But The Ghost of Mrs. Muir, what's his face? Rex Harrison plays the titular ghost. A grumpy ghost who isn't, like of a sea captain, who's not happy to be dead. And the strong-willed young woman, beautiful Jean Tierney, just takes out the house on coastal wherever, beautiful windswept whatever, and then... She finds that there's this ghost inhabiting happening, and he's Rex Harrison and doing full sort of blustery Rex Harrison. If you like Rex Harrison, it's very Rex. And I found out 
My wife does, like Rex Harrison. She never does this. We never have these conversations. I know I say we never all the time, and then I proceed to say how we do these things. But we seriously, do. we're not the kind of couple that really likes to have those conversations where we're like, well, obviously that actor I find very attractive, even though you're, I, I love you, Meredith. But we don't, we don't like to have those conversations. Don't think they're particularly helpful. But Rex Harrison, I guess. Rex Harrison. <laughs> she said it about exactly two people. Young R.C. Sproul and, <laughs> and Rex Harrison. They're, a, they're kind of from a similar cloth, aren't they? She likes stout, grumpy. Old men with receding hairlines. Guys with receding hairlines or messy hairlines. I mean, I think I can take all of this as a compliment, perhaps. My Fair Lady fan? I'm... I mean, is she? Yeah. yeah I mean, she loves Rex. She's, she's a Rex course. Harrison yeah, fan. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, I shouldn't have even... She wants to. She wants a man who will yell at her to bring her slippers. And hey, I can provide that, baby. I'll do that. You want that? No. If your wife is a Rex Harrison fan, or if you're just a person that enjoys watching Rex Harrison, and you, if you like the idea of Rex Harrison as a grumpy ghost who falls in love with a lady, it's a good movie. Kind of a dumb ending, like a cornball ending, because we have to contrive a way to bring these two people together, even though she's alive and he's a ghost. So there's not. They set themselves up for failure. There was not a good way to end the movie, and the way it ends is dumb. But if you would enjoy watching 100 minutes of Rex Harrison being Rex Harrison as a ship-captain ghost who says things like, blast me barnacles, woman, (laughs) then you will enjoy this movie. And Gene Tierney is very beautiful and headstrong and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, something for everybody. I oh, and the bad guy is played by George Sanders, who I love. He plays the critic Addison DeWitt in All About Eve. And huh. he, he did the voice of Cher Khan. He had this sort of, this voice like the silky British sort of voice. And he plays the bad human, not ghost guy that's going to try and get Gene Tierney to fall in love with him. And he's great. Any other romantic movies we want to throw out there? For the people. Having a hard time. Having a hard time thinking of romantic movies. All I can think of is Downton Abbey because I saw the first season for the first time. Yes. I like Downton Abbey, Ben. I really didn't like it. I What I like is I like the production and I like the concept. And how can you not like a show about all the layers of British society back up 75 years ago or whatever, 100 years ago? And wherever it was, <laughs> 75, 75 years. Yeah, I don't know where it was. Back in the, the time of World War II. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Back 100 years ago, excuse me. And seeing the servants and the masters. And I love it. But it's so. It's more than 100 years ago. It's, it's pre World War One, right? It's, it's pre Titanic, at least. That's how. World War One is beginning, I believe, as the show ends. Well, Titanic yeah. is 1914, I think. So. Or 1912 or something. It's, Titanic is I think I think Titanic... The Titanic sinks at the beginning of the show. At the beginning of season one. Spoilers! Yeah. Sorry about I that. I knew the, the, the Titanic featured in... Yes. Uh, so In an early part of the that's show. That's right, it does. Like the very first episode. So, okay, more than 100 years ago. But anyway, I love the concept. The production is great. The actors are awesome. And it's pure soap opera storytelling with no respect for its characters or its audience. Yeah, that guy's a heck. Julian Fellows, I think is his name, the guy that writes that He's show. He's terrible. He's done a lot of like Dickens adaptations and oh, some Austin. And, and it gets so bad so fast. We watched it. When it was a thing, we watched the first season, and I just... Yeah. Episode one, you don't know. You're like, cool. Oh, I like all these setups. Episode two, you're like, wait, 
what just happened? So it, it just gets worse instantly. and worse and worse and worse and worse until yeah. it's intolerable. You think you hope that it's going to have some of the charm of some of those BBC shows or some of those British shows that nope. are just like, yeah, it's just smart enough, just sophisticated enough that maybe that's what it needs. But I, to I don't be. really like, I am not one of those people that cares about the no, me neither. class structure of 1910s Britain and the upstairs downstairs dynamic. Like I just I like that world a lot for some reason. Any movie where there's like a bunch of people and then there's bells and the bells ring and they have to mm-hmm. go do things. I don't like it. I'm out. It has I to like be really it. good to transcend that. I'm sure we could name a dozen really good movies that transcend what I just said. I, but I definitely like that. I was there for the concept. But I think in the last episode, spoilers, when they use a horribly tragic miscarriage as a very silly plot point. Yeah, I don't know. It was just like it was a really it was a really gross, mean, and unfair thing to do. Anyway, any last willingness I had to watch it was gone when they did that. I hate you show. So we're done. Yep. There's this whole genre of shows. My wife started to watch a Julia Childs show. There's like the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. There's all these shows where they're set in the past, but it's like this weird wish for fulfillment past where Actually, the gay guy is going to find some fulfillment or the black lady is going to stand up to her boss and she's going to become the titan of industry. And I, I just don't understand what the appeal of those shows were. Like, you could write about the experience of the marginalized, quote unquote, if you want to do that's fine. But why change it? Like, why make it so that they actually were able to score more points than they... I mean, I, I understand that that's wish fulfillment and people like that, but I just... That drives me nuts. I, I hate like I hate feminism in general, but when you watch a movie set in the 1800s and the women are like, well, obviously we must have the vote and we must be emancipated and men can't tell us what to do. It's like that takes it just it, apart from the politics of it all and the stupid writing of it all. It just takes me out because it's like that's not who that woman would be. She that's wouldn't right. say those things. That's right. That's dumb. You want to write that's a strong really woman, do it, but be clever enough to write it within the confines of who she would be at the time. Like, find out how she would stand against it without having dialogue from the 21st century. Like, like, just be more clever. Yep. That's right. How is a woman who doesn't have the boat, who's not emancipated, who, who you know, does belong to her husband, how does she have strength? Figure that out. Yeah, instead, that's right. instead of just pretending like you can, she's a time traveler from D- the 19th. Downton's not interested. Downton does that all the time. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I, just, I I hate that kind of thing. It's it drives me crazy too. I mean, a just don't have a gay guy. But if you're gonna, what would it actually be like for him? You sh- you ought to ask that question, as opposed to it's the respect that I have for Mad Men. Even Mad Men falls into a Mad Men has a lot of fornication. Probably isn't a show people need to watch. But if people are familiar with it. It does fall into some wish fulfillment, especially towards the end with Peggy. But overall, it's just like, this is what it was like. It was terrible. And I don't necessarily agree with that, but at least it's a point of view and it's a consistent one. And Yeah, here's what's romantic about it, but it's, we're not going to be, but we're not romantic. Right. We're not going to, I mean, that show does have some, a lot of the bad, a lot of the ugly, a lot of the romance of it, but it's not trying to. Even when there's romance, there's always a price. And, that's right. And yeah, that's, that's just a, good that's writing. That's the right way to put it. It's like Peggy, okay, Peggy did climb the corporate ladder in a way a lot of women couldn't at the time. And she paid. She, she had to 
bear the guilt of basically getting rid of or pawning off a kid and all yep. this stuff. And the show's upfront about that. The show would disagree with us on its ha- relative happiness with where she lands, but at least it's like, here's all the factors. And here's the cost. And here was the cost. Let me talk very briefly about that great romantic Don film. going to keep surviving. Yep. And it will keep costing. Yeah. And he will destroy himself and everyone. His family, everybody that he loves. Right. If he's capable of love in the first place. Yep. And he was our grandpa or dad. So let me talk very quickly about Killers of the Flower Moon, a film that I despised. It, I do not understand the acclaim. I mean, I guess I get it. But I think it it is a very bad movie as history. It's a very bad movie as woke propaganda, actually. It's just, I just don't think it's a good movie. I don't, I think people have to like it because it just feels like the emperor has no clothes kind of thing. Like our greatest living filmmaker made his final masterpiece, maybe his final masterpiece about Osage Nation, woke important issues to leftists. And so we have to say it's a masterpiece. It kind of feels like one of those. Obviously, Martin Scorsese can shoot a scene in his sleep. There's lots of good performances and cool little trick shots. And maybe people have seen like some of the montages and transitions and Stuff like that. There's a lot to like. I've seen I've seen some of the transitions and things. Yeah, they're cool. It's cool. Yeah, it's compelling as far as cinema craft goes. Scorsese can't. It's like later era dad movie Spielberg. He can't help but be a master because he is. But man, there was something about my wife tapped out after about 45 minutes into this three four hour movie. She just didn't care and or didn't want to watch what was about to happen. But well, here's my thing. So everybody's familiar with the premise of the movie. It's the basically white people got together and had this conspiracy to murder, to marry and then murder, but also just murder a lot of, just straight up assassinate a lot of natives who happened to own this land that had this oil rights. And so they just like, like we, we made the Indians go there. And then they just happened, they lucked into owning this incredible value land. And then we decimated them and stole the land. And we did it all in the 20th century. And there are these characters that are the, the main villain of the piece was, is as played by Robert De Niro is this guy who pretends to be a friend to the Osage nation and is like this patriarch of the whole community. And they all love him. And he's like their white grandpa, but actually he's part of this giant malicious scheme to have people that are in cahoots with him, marry their women, have the rights to the oil, go to the husband, and then you poison the wife. And this is all true. This all happened. The FBI was formed partially to crack this case. Like we did not have a federal bureau of investigation. We decided we needed one for this sort of thing. And so it's not, it's a, it's an interesting story and it's a story worth telling. And I don't have any problem with that. And white people are the villains. Okay. Great. I mean, that's what happened. We murdered these people. There's no no ifs, ands. Or, I mean, we, I say we, and maybe that's me giving in to leftist propaganda. But uh, I think it is. Okay. Yeah, I, I agree with you, which is why I caught myself. But, you know, I'm trying to give them as much as possible, okay? The white people, my race, right. murdered the red people, the other race, and treated them in an inhuman way. That all happened. It's documented. It's fact. They did not make it up. Here's the thing, though. Here's my big thing about the movie. It is so... And then some white people formed a Bureau of Investigation to solve the crimes and then prosecuted the crap out of the white people. Right. So that's the first Mm -hmm. thing, is it does want to assign blame to all of us for 
the the language that I was just using is baked into the premise of the movie. And mm-hmm. I, in the movie, if you don't know, I don't think it's spoiling anything. Also, I just don't care. It ends with Martin Scorsese himself coming on screen in a role that's meant to say, we're all complicit. And should I have even been the one telling this story? Basically, we see a white radio play about the story that's like, the FBI came in and saved the day. And then Martin Scorsese is there as one of the performers, and he reads the final narration. And it's, it's a, people were sobbing in their seats. It's such a profound sort of confessional from this 80-year-old white patriarch of the film industry. He's saying, it was I was complicit in this. And should I have even been the one? I know it's, but I'm the only one that can get the money for the story. So I, I did my best. I'm sorry. Is that kind of thing. And I'm going to make a lot of money and win some awards too. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, probably people have already turned on this movie and that will continue to turn on it. And yeah. it's got all, is you can never be left enough to actually appease these bloodthirsty people. I shouldn't say bloodthirsty savages. <laughs> 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 Anyway, the main problem with the movie is... We're talking uh, about white people, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. The main... The thing that is so fascinatingly wrongheaded about the movie in my book is that they... He obviously... He famously he consulted with the Osage Nation. He brought in Native people to play the characters. He, he wanted to get everything right. He spent... They actually wrote the story as the book is written from the perspective of the FBI agent. That was the character that Leonardo DiCaprio was going to play, was this FBI agent that cracked the case. And then Leo, they did a reading, and Leo was like, nah, that's not the character. This guy that marries this woman and then starts to poison her, that's the character I want to play. So they rewrote the whole thing to make Leonardo's character like the bad white guy. Mm -hmm. So they got done doing all that, and they just assumed that native people are wonderful and that white people are bad and it is such a an incurious movie that's my problem it does not want to ask any questions about its subject matter questions that a liberal or a conservative or anyone who's telling the story ought to want to ask it does not want to ask why these native women married these men I mean, it doesn't want to give a liberal answer like they were forced into it somehow. It doesn't want to give a an answer that makes them complicit somehow. But it's just like that's where the drama is. I mean, the drama could just be the FBI guy solves the case. That'd be good drama. You get kind of a 90s race movie where we have a white avatar, last samurai style. We have a white guy that all us white people can cheer as he's. Mm-hmm. cracks the case falls in love with the native woman whatever we're seeing it through his eyes we you know the 80 percent of america have our avatar but we're not supposed to do that anymore so we got to tell the story from they don't actually tell the story from the native woman's perspective that'd be one way to do it but they tell the story from the bad guy's perspective and which is fine i don't really have a problem with that but they are so incurious they do not ask any question. I mean, of course, Leonardo DiCaprio gets to play the big scenes where he's racked with guilt and stuff like that. But the movie does not ask why he would be willing to do this, what makes him evil beyond just being a white guy. Greedy. Greedy. Yeah. It does not want to say, like, was all of society. I mean, I guess it kind of indicates that all white people are like this. Without saying it, but it's, or maybe it just about says it, I guess. But it's just like, I guess the FBI did solve this case. We see this depicted. So not everybody was like this. So 
why are these people like this? Why are they treating? Why do, why does any group of people treat another group of people inhumanely? That's a good question, right? Why do we dehumanize the other? That's an interesting question that I think conservatives and liberals and everybody in between could be like, that's an interesting question. But the movie doesn't ask that question. It doesn't want to ask any question about why a native woman would marry a callow man that obviously wants to murder her, which I understand why it doesn't because it doesn't want to make her complicit. But that's drama. That's interesting. Like, that, that's a good question. Like, Goodfellas is, is Martin Scorsese's famous movie about a gangster and the woman who marries him. And he has a lot to say about why you might want to be a gangster, why you might want to murder people, what's, what you stand to gain, how much fun it can be, the terrible price you pay, and why a woman might be attracted to Like, he has a lot. He has answers to all those questions. This movie doesn't even ask those questions. It's, it's just fascinatingly, like unwilling to engage with its material and i was expecting it to like engage in an annoying liberal way but what i wasn't expecting is that it just would not engage with it at all and it really is like wokeism is the death of not just civilization but art because it inhibits us from asking because we just have to say well all the white guys were bad that's the answer to your questions nathan you're not allowed to answer or say anything else but i want to know why what made us bad tell me how bad we are okay fine why? How did, what did we get there? How, how did, what did we inherit from our ancestors that made us that way? How could we be so cruel? Tell me, Martin Scorsese. That's what I'm wanting. You know, whip me. I'm a masochist. Like, tell me how terrible I am. But I guess we were just all a bunch of psycho, terrible people that were like, let's murder the native. Like that, I, but it was I don't just know. whiteness or something. It's just whiteness. Was, and I guess they were all good and wonderful, even though... They married, they were rich, right? Like these women aren't these put upon women. They can marry They don't need to marry out Mm -hmm. of their civilization, out of their community, out of their station. Right. The movie starts, they've actually got like white people serving them. It's like the whole thing that's irritating to Robert De Niro's villain is that everything's been inverted here, right? These people have money, they control the community, and everyone is serving them. So these women can do whatever they want. Now, they're stuck in these weird conservatorships where they have to ask permission for their money. That's an element of the movie. So maybe that's why. But the movie doesn't tell me that's why. Like It just does not give me a reason. And especially with Lily Gladstone, who you've heard about, who's up for an Oscar. She plays the main Osage Nation woman. And she just gives this very noble kind of Jaimon Houston and Gladiator kind uh-huh. of the noble stoic person. And I'm just like, okay, so why? And then Leonardo DiCaprio, you've probably seen images of him. He goes around with this scowl on his face and he's got these bad teeth and he's just, I'm just a, I'm just a callow, insensitive clod. And it's like, what? And he's like way too old for the role. It's like 50 year old Leonardo DiCaprio Uh paying a guy that just got back from the war. And it's like, why did she marry him? Like, what was attractive? What did he do? Let him be full Leo. Let him be charming. Don't let him like put in bad teeth and try and play a character you let leonardo dicaprio just be leonardo dicaprio and bring some leonardo dicaprio energy and and be charming like we all know he can be this movie suddenly makes sense and has something to say maybe but it wants to say like all the natives were totally i don't know i'm just repeating myself now but i was just flabbergasted at how shallow this thing was Martin Scorsese evolved. He's like the guy that can get into people's souls and he, has, he bears all this Catholic guilt and he 
You can take the most twisted people and make them relatable and taxi drive, like all this stuff. That's what he's famous for. But you can't give me one indication as to why one of these native women would might, might have wanted to marry one of these dunderheads, why that might have been attracted to them, how they were complicit in their own demise. Like that's not interesting to you. Even as a leftist, that's not an interesting question. Why does someone let themselves be destroyed? Like there's so many interesting questions that you could have asked. And, and the movie just like does not do it. I mean, it almost feels like he imported some of his sense of who the gangsters are in movies like Goodfellas, where they are very shallow people. They're just like, the answer in Goodfellas is Henry Hill just liked money and he liked being on top of the world and he liked the adrenaline rush and he was just a jerk. That's like the entire answer. But it's a profound answer and in the movie. It's a good if don't watch it, if you don't want to see a bunch of gangster stuff realistically portrayed, but like it's, it has, it's a real examination, interrogation, whatever of a, of who a gangster, a low level hoodlum would be and why he would be that way. And it has answers to those questions, but you can't just bring the same sort of, well, they're shallow, bad people who like to murder into this. Or if you do, you have to tell me why are they like that? And Robert De Niro is getting a lot of praise for playing the white patriarch who pretends to love this these people and is beloved by them and turns out to be the architect of their demise but again he's just sort of like you get chilling scenes where he's like comforting someone whose spouse he just had murdered and it's all well done but you're just like why is this guy like this is he representative of all of us or is he like a psychopath or is he like just such a racist that he just can't see these people as anything but dogs to be exterminated like i, I couldn't even tell you that much i don't even know if he's bloodthirsty or if he's just desensitized, like it just does not. So I thought it was a really crummy, boring, lifeless movie. And I know it's Oscar season and it might sweep. And some of our listeners, I hope I'm doing them a service because it's the kind of thing that has enough sort of clout. And I've, some of these movies aren't even worth talking about it. Nobody that listens to our show would even be tempted, but, <coughs> but kills the flower mood. It feels like people might want to watch it. It's a big star movie. And I just, I, I didn't think there was any entertainment there. And there wasn't any elucidation there. And Leonardo DiCaprio is a bad actor when he's in plot properly. He's, he's one of those guys like James Dean, who's just like, hey, look at me, I'm acting. As opposed to just inhabiting the character, he's always commenting on the character. He's always like, look at me now, I'm, a, I'm this guy and he's pretty dumb, isn't he? And I'm really acting him quite well I was like yeah you are but you're acting I want you to just disappear disappear I want you to just be and Leonardo DiCaprio really can't do that in, unless he's playing a character that's more modern and more like himself I like him as Gatsby I like him as catch me if you can guy I, I think Leonardo DiCaprio in the right role can be brilliant he's a very likable charismatic actor but when he does these character parts I don't like him so maybe that's not it maybe that's a surprise to people maybe it's not but I just thought even in a you hope when you watch a movie like this that even if it's bad, it'll be interesting. But this was just a slog with nothing to say besides people with red skin are noble and taken advantage of and people with white skin are mean and take advantage of them. Come at me, Marty. I know he listens to this podcast. This is his mm -hmm. favorite cinema podcast. Okay. I can't imagine a show that would teach him more. Yep. Anybody think of any other romantic movies they want to recommend for <laughs> the post-Valentine's Day did we say what the alternative to Breakfast Club is? 
Well, I've been ju- trying to decide whether to go out on this limb. I've not seen this movie for 20, 30 years. But say anything, I remember being, it's a little feminist. It's a little, it's, it, it, there's a lot probably not to like about it. But I remember it being the actual thing that Breakfast Club wants to be, the three-dimensional examination of what it's like to be a high school kid, what it's like to interact with your parents, like what some of those relationships are like. And of course, it's got John Cusack with a boombox. So yeah. what's not to love about that? I'll give it a shot. I, I, yeah, I'll be interested. Maybe if you give it a shot, you can come back and tell me I'm crazy and it's I'll stupid. I'll come back and report. Yeah. But, it's a, but you know, no matter what, you're going to get John Cusack with a boombox. Yeah. So it's a win. So you get your 80s yeah. hit. Maybe it'll be in a bad package. Maybe it'll be in a good package. I want to say it's actually a thoughtful movie, but I could be wrong. Okay. Ben, final thoughts? Mm, watch Princess Mononoke. And or the- Beautiful Romance. And some arrows. <laughs> Taking people's heads off and things like that. Maybe don't watch it with your kids, but it's great. Two out of two. It's it's very romantic. Two out of two. And it's got the heads. It's got the romance. Oh, okay. Um, Okay. It's got two two selling points. It does. It really does. Yeah. I'll just look through this romance list I had pulled up one more time. You could watch Groundhog Day. You could watch The Princess Bride. You could watch Beauty and the Beast, the Disney classic from 1991. Yeah. You could watch all kinds of things. You're your own person. Figure it out. Anything else that I would recommend off the beaten path? No, not right now. Okay. Thanks for listening, everybody. Until next time. So many movies to choose from. <laughs> There's so many out there. We threw Casablanca out there. What's the line from that? <laughs> Quick. Uh, here's looking at you, kid. Thanks. <laughs>